This episode is co-sponsored by the International Schools Network. ISN is a brave space where you can collaborate, write articles and start discussions across a broad range of key topics within international education. Whether you're a teacher, member of staff or a leader working at an international school, ISN invites you to be part of that conversation. Head over to isn.education to learn more and be part of this incredibly exciting community of educators. Now, let me hand you over to our host, Angela Fares. Hello and welcome to season two of The Educators. This is episode two and my name is Angela Fares and I'm the founder of Full Circle Educational Consultancy. Um, we've had the pleasure over the last year of working with some really great schools who are looking to innovate in the areas of curriculum and assessment and in skilling, providing skills for students for the 21st century. This current season is focusing on change makers and thought leaders and I'm delighted to welcome to episode two today Dr Kevin House. Welcome Kevin. Hello, thanks for having me. Really great to have you here. So I have a, a, a very impressive biog that I'm just going to share with everybody. You're currently Education Futures Architect at Education in Motion. You're also Associate Professor in Practice Durham University and a Fellow of the Chartered College of Teaching. Kevin has spent almost 30 years in global education. He's worked in school systems in Africa, Europe and Asia. More recently, he held a senior position with International Baccalaureate, working on curriculum design and policy before joining the Education in Motion team. In his current role, he began by establishing the group's Connect Ed Institute for Learning and Research and is now developing a new curriculum and credentialing model for a concept high school called SE21. Kevin gained his doctorate in education from Bath University, where his thesis was awarded the Jeff Thompson Prize. He has published academic work on such topics as educational values, pluriculturalism, teacher professional learning, curriculum and assessment design, and educational leadership. Wow, Kevin, that's, that's quite a list of achievements. First of all, congratulations on everything you've achieved so far. Thanks, Angela. I like to keep busy. <laughs> certainly do. You certainly do. And, and, and you, we, we, we keep in touch regularly because uh, you have such an amazing knowledge on, on the future of education and, and really innovative thinking, particularly on the curriculum and assessment innovation. So I guess my first question to you today is, you know, what does the kind of the, the assessment landscape look like for you at the moment and where are you hoping it, it will go now and in the future? Yes, yeah, a great question. It's something I've been spending quite a lot of time looking at over the last 12 to 15 months, partly to do with the project that I might talk about a little bit later that I've been working on. But I think fundamentally, for myself, from a very personal level as a learner, I think growing up in the United Kingdom and going to school in England, and, and if you like, be, being a product of, the, of an industrial model of education, where much of it's based around summative exam-based examina- you know, exam regimes and, if you like, the sifting that takes place in that kind of model mm. that created a, I, I think of it as a kind of binary knowledge system, I mm-hmm. think, being a product of that. And when I, mean, when I say bi- binary knowledge, I mean, really, on, on the one level, you get sifted into a stream that leads you towards more abstract abst- academic knowledge in a traditional sense or you get pushed more towards experiment experiential skills-based vocational training and I think for me that was something that was quite painful to live as a student you know 
starting from the age of 11, doing the 11 plus, failing the 11 plus. Fundamentally, because as I've written and talked about elsewhere, I was doing a lot of learning outside of the academic sphere of school, basically living with a parent who who was bipolar. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there was a lot of things I was juggling as a sort of 10, 12 year old kid, sitting in an 11 plus exam and, and having the time and the space to to max out on that academics wasn't a priority in my life at that moment in time. Oh, and that yeah. created a trajectory that led me through secondary modern, getting very few qualifications and going off to a technical college and realising that necessarily wasn't for me. And then going off into the world of work and doing various things for about 10 years before I came back to formal education. Mm. So I think that as a seed in my own development led me much later in life as I did start stacking the more traditional formal qualifications to to reflect on well why why do we have this binary system where mm. if you look at most global policy now OECD WEF yeah. UNESCO saying that fundamentally employers are saying look it's great that kids coming out of the university system with a lot of capabilities in in traditional academic disciplines but their application and their skills and the development of sometimes called soft skills in the areas of creativity, critical thinking, problem solving, are not really either clearly articulated in what we get from them in terms of credential or actually not evidenced in the work that they're, you know, when they come into the workplace. So I think for me that made me think the binary knowledge system we've got and the binary educational systems we've developed what we actually need in the 21st century to solve some of these big complex problems that young people face is we actually need the abstract traditions of disciplinary and transdisciplinary knowledge. But alongside that, you need the ability to apply them and the ability to use thinking models across disciplines and concepts to come up with new solutions and innovation. And and how how can we do that practically? And you, are, you and I have talked before about how, how that can be supported does technology play an important role in that is that is that going to be an enabler for us to kind of develop these skills to do this cross-curricular and skill work and to assess the students what what part does technology play in student learning and assessment at the moment do you think and moving forward yeah I, I mean again as part of the work I've been doing in the last couple of years looking and talking to people in educational technology more broadly around well first and foremost let's put one I think legacy term to one side for the moment which is assessment yeah I think it carries a lot of baggage Mm -hmm. one of the things we've been doing with the concept that I'm working on is we've been talking about evidencing learning so Mm -hmm. allowing for the learner to show evidence of learning in specific areas so once you start looking at evidencing learning as opposed to necessarily assessment. It's not to, uh, not to say assessment isn't part of that, but I don't think it's the whole thing. Mm. Evidencing of learning can come in multiple ways. And with the advent of some of the technological enhancements with some of the tools that are out there at the moment, the way in which you could draw upon, for example, what some call formative or summative assessment regimes that might have expert um, evaluators traditionally teachers, learning designers, accrediting bodies. Alongside that, you might have students doing forms of self-reflection and evidencing learning Mm -hmm. through 
showing their understanding and application of skills. Peer-to-peer evaluation, so been talking to a researcher in Canada who's doing some very cool research around looking at correlations between expert evaluators and as few as five or six scaffolded um, peer evaluators and some quite strong correlations in terms of identifying growth. And then, of course, um, machine uh, learning through um, algorithms Mm -hmm. that could collect cumulative, if you like, bite-sized small pieces of data over time through the interaction, particularly in hybrid models, Mm. where you can track things more traditional areas around closed and, and, and closed questioning and, and more text starting to come around around open-ended questioning and looking at lexicon algorithms and then alongside that putting those four bits together if you like so mm. expert evaluation peer evaluation self-evaluation machine evaluation longitudinally and cumulatively over time you've got the potential there of creating quite rich data pictures yeah. of student evidence of learning that perhaps takes away having to put the emphasis on a month in May at the mm-hmm. end of a two or four year program. Mm-hmm. And so also broaden the skill set you're looking at. So not necessarily just n- narrow traditional academic disciplinary knowledge and skills, but also some of those more experiential applicable or application of skills and, and those areas around what some call soft skills or 21st century skills. I read a fascinating piece on your LinkedIn yesterday and I would encourage everyone to follow you on LinkedIn to, to find where we're going to be going <laughs> in the future of education on micro-credentials and micro-credentialing. Um, that's, that's, that's what you're explaining here, is it? Or what is micro-credentialing? It's an, ele- it's an element, yeah. I mean, I guess what I was talking about there was what's the evidencing, re- the evidencing mm-hmm. ecosystem, but alongside that, what's the credentialing mm-hmm. ecosystem? Because, of course... You've got learning, you've got evidencing of learning, and you've got the credentials that you mm-hmm. need, and lots of parallels with mm. currency, right? So you need credential yeah. capital to make your way in the world. That's that's just a, a fact of life. And how do you stack those credentials? So traditionally, you'd look at you know certification transcripts from validated bodies, schools, qualifications boards, universities, and the like. And I think we're potentially moving in a direction where, and it's not new tech, really, the idea of micro-credential has been around for quite a long time, but potentially now, when you take some of that evidencing of learning across Mm -hmm. different rich data fields, you could create taxonomies Mm -hmm. of micro-credentials. So you could badge an experience. So if I engage with, you know, a webinar, I could collect badges, pretty low-level stuff, but I can put that into a digital wallet all the way through to things that have quite substantial assessment artifacts that get evaluated by a validated provider and become mm-hmm. a qualification. So, if, you know, an analogy I've used in, in conversations is if you were to take something in a UK context, for example, like a GCSE, two-year GCSE program, say in mathematics, you could break down, look at the syllabus, you'd have mathematical concepts built throughout that two-year syllabus. Alongside that, you would have the, the, if you like, the shift of concepts into other concepts, so some of the thinking tools, and if there were a way of figuring out what assessments you would have to, to look at the, if you like, the leveraging of different concepts across concepts in mathematics. So you've got those two areas. 
And if you were to create individual micro-credentials for each mathematical concept, you could stack those over a period of time, which could be open-ended. And at the end of that, once you've established and stacked, let's say, 15 or 20 of those conceptual micro-credentials, you get a qualification, which possibly Mm. doesn't look too dissimilar to a GCSE now. But the reality is that what you've done there is you've taken the emphasis away from everybody having to sit and do the same set of exams at the same point in time. And so when you've Mm. got disruptions like we faced over the last couple of years, on the one hand, you've you've taken the emphasis on it having to be done over a a set period of time, Um, but you've also created a a space of more agency for the learner. So they, alongside their expert facilitator, teacher, learning designer, whatever you want to call them, could determine between them when's a good time to sit one of those particular micro-credentials as part of that stack. So you're creating a little bit more personalization. Obviously, that in itself creates new challenges in terms of Mm. how do you scale that. But I would argue that potentially with some of the work around machine learning and algorithms, we we are moving into a space where in the next decade or so, those things, those some of those challenges will be Mm. overcome. And I know oftentimes with exam regimes, for example, people say, well, but they're fair. And I would say, well, I think evidencing of learning done at learner pace is still offering a fairness because I think if you look at exams for example and the world in which we live now with the access and diversity agendas and quite rightly we've created provisions to make them more fair effectively that idea of sitting in a room over a mm. set period of time to try and display a quite an explicit set of narrow knowledge and skills it's kind of blown out of the water anyway, because obviously because we create, you know, we've, we've said with people who, with neurodiversity, we're saying we'll give you more time. But I think in a sense, that's probably mm. not dealing with the problem. That's just using a very narrow system that's time-based to try and address a much more rich and a much more detailed problem. Whereas I think evidencing of learning that self-paced could offer more, more agency in that, in that, in that environment. Absolutely. And and the way you explain it so eloquently and simply (laughs) kind of makes me think that it's exactly how we develop as humans. We carry on learning throughout life. We don't stop and it shouldn't be an end point, really. It should be continual and and we should be kind of reassessing as as we go through life. So it seems to be a much more natural way of, as you say, evidencing learning than something that's just a point in time, which doesn't take into account, you know, the, the, the nuances of learning, which can happen at a pace one week and nothing the next week. And you could have a bad day on the day that you're doing your exam. And yeah, I think you're right. And I think also traditionally with the industrial model, we compartmentalized when mm-hmm. we did learning. So you did yeah. a chunk of learning from K-12, you did another chunk either at vocational training or in the workplace or at university. And then for many of us, you didn't go back to formal learning, possibly Mm. for for large parts of your career. Whereas now, obviously, we're talking more about pathways that create lifelong learning journeys. Some talk about the K-60 curriculum, for example, Mm. in that there's an expectation, given the speed of change that we have to have the skills of learning how to learn so that we can continually keep learning now of course there is 
problems around that narrative, around the lifelong learning narrative, around that kind of the, the potential for that to disrupt or impinge on, on the sense of, of having a, a balanced lifestyle. But I think mm-hmm. the, the point is, what it's trying to do is to shift the dialogue to the notion of saying, well, I've got more autonomy on choosing what I learn and when I learn it. Um, and I also think some of the pina- financial constraints around a comp- compartmentalised model means that we can spread the burden of payment yeah. over a longer period of time. You know, in those mm. countries where there is no longer public funding available for things like tertiary, we're, we're asking kids to not just do K-12, but then stack on some, some mm. tertiary. But we're asking them to carry that debt unless, you know, they, they come from a family that's, that's able to cut them loose from that. And in some cases in North America, for example, that sometimes these kids are walking away with a quarter of a million dollars in debt yeah. that they're not going to pay off and can't do a deposit on their first home until they're mm. in their late 40s or 50s. Yeah. And that, you know, that, that's a crazy situation to be in. So, so as it seems eminently sensible to, to take the evidencing learning approach and to look at micro-credentialing and, and that pathway in terms of recognising learning and understanding, why aren't we doing it? What's stopping us changing the system? Where is the blockage, do you think? It, well, it's, it's obviously it's a, it's a systems thinking problem and there's, there's, there's multiple blockages there's also multiple stakeholders and I think, well, I talked about learning, I talked about evidencing of learning, I talked about credentialing. If we look at the three areas, I think in, the ter- in terms of learning, in many parts of the world, learning seems to have been largely determined by the curriculum and the mm-hmm. curriculum largely given uh, by nation states, by governments, that creates some constraints. I think teacher training and the accountability mechanisms, you know, people like Gert Biester mm-hmm. in the UK talk a lot about the fact that we've created a kind of minefield of accountability from things like Ofsted, obviously is an example many people would use in that context, through to league tables, whether it be tertiary or, or mm-hmm. school league tables. And that's undermined the agency of teachers to, I think, really genuinely engage with what's the appropriate um, landscape for learning for the students that they're working with. Um, Because the accountability around that's driven by those tables leads to a lot of, perhaps, practice that means that you fixate on the outcomes of the curriculum. In other mm. words, the examinations that sit at the end of them for, for people in the secondary school. But, you know, in some contexts, even the testing regimes that happen down in primary as well. Mm. Singapore has quite rigid environments yeah. there. And that, that determines practice. So I think you've got, you've got blockage yeah. there. I think with evidencing of learning, I think they're, because of economies of scale in the industrial era, really, We've created a narrative of fairness around an economy of scale, f- fundamentally, and that's meant that we largely have live in a world where we've come to see the only way of trusting the validity and creating a sense of equity and fairness is by all doing the same thing at the same time. And so that leads us to a very summative environment. Mm. And then f- lastly, with the credentialing, I think 
you know, if you look at all of the big cred industries out there, their business models are all fundamentally based on high stakes examinations. You know, when I worked for even a relatively small organisation like the International Baccalaureate, a massive part of revenue there is determined by the IB diploma. You know, the revenue they get from running professional learning or authorising schools is is very minor compared to the amount of money that's generated mm-hmm. through exam regimes. So I think that's the same for the other big credentialing providers in any part yeah. of the world. So, they, you know, you, you need to give them an incentive to clear that blockage. So I suppose those are three three blocks that immediately spring to mind for me. Another one would be teach training. Again, yeah. I think... Um, Many of the teach training programs in nation states are designed to meet the purposes of a national curriculum. And therefore, you know, that, that creates some barriers, I think, potentially to, to what's covered in the, in, the, in the curriculum for training mm. teachers. Yeah, certainly. And, and, and I guess also universities have a part to play in that as well, in terms of being the end game for, for most yeah. of this. You and I had a conversation a few days ago, actually, about capability and competency, which was really interesting. <laughs> yes. And we talked about what do these two terms mean? So have, have we come to a conclusion yet on <laughs> capability versus I, I, competency? I'm, I'm giggling because I've spent most of the day. Oh, yeah, have, that's fortuitous. Dan, Good, I didn't Dan, know that. massive wormhole because the the team I'm working with on this concept high school curriculum Mm. we've been um, trying to to juggle with this in terms of what do we want the the evidencing of learning ecosystem to look like Mm. for this school design and um, well as with all things in academia the the more you get into the detail you more you realize that nobody seems to agree with each other so Mm -hmm. There, there was a paper a colleague of mine was referencing taken from the medical profession, so the training of doctors, mm-hmm. where basically it was saying that competency was more closed, formal, usually assessed uh, assess with examinations and usually a, a regime of practice that was very institutionalised, mm-hmm. whereas capabilities were more about applying of skills, open-ended often portfolio relevant in terms of what would the artifact look like that demonstrate a capability as opposed to a competency. Then I was looking at another paper with a guy that I'm doing some work with looking at 21st century skills on a working group globally and the paper there was using a case study around computer science but fundamentally there it was talking about the notion that knowledge acquisition was a capability but the application of that knowledge was a competency. Mm-hmm. And then alongside that, you've got obviously dis- dispositions, yeah. which would be some of those soft skill areas. Yeah. So I guess where I've got to so far <laughs> is I'm thinking, well, okay, the model we've designed, we, we've got a model that we talk about transdisciplinary literacies and dynamic literacies. And so fundamentally for us, transdisciplinary literacies are basically taking the traditional disciplines and some new disciplines like biotech, nanotech, future studies, mm-hmm. stacking those and looking at the transdisciplinary thinking models that work across them and trying to have that as one, if you like, specific area of learning, those literacies being developed over time. Mm-hmm. And those, I think, would be a combination of the acquisition of the knowledge would be development of capability 
and then the demonstration of applying that knowledge and using creativity within that knowledge across different knowledges would be a form of competency. And then uh, in the dynamic literacies, we're looking at soft skills. And for me, that would largely exist in the realm of things like dispositional traits, creativity potentially being one, critical thinking, and then looking at things like systems Mm -hmm. thinking and metacognition. Mm -hmm. So all of this amazing research and and work and talking and discussing and meeting with people that you're doing is going to result in SE21. SE21 or I think SE21 is its working title, whether whether it becomes a school in that or whether it be. Yeah. Yeah. And so fundamentally, it's currently the design model is a four year high school program Mm -hmm. built around the transdisciplinary literacies, dynamic literacies. That was the kind of what of the learning. The how of the learning is three composite elements, really. It was what we call provocation-based learning units, personal discovery projects, and learning pathway advisory. So those, in terms of the learner experience, it was those three areas with a the fundamental spine through Mm -hmm. which you'd access development of those two forms of literacy. And that would give you credentialing uh, environment which would be again partly because there's a there's a kind of seismic shift not seismic mm. shift there's a there's a rift down the Atlantic on one side you've got North America where the credentialing default is a transcript model based yeah. on Carnegie based yeah. on what they call seat time mm-hmm. and then in in Europe UK being part of that maybe that's unpopular but uk <laughs> europe and 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 to, an, and to a degree in 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 asia pacific as well and australasia a qualifications driven environment yeah but again there it tends to be those qualifications are built around hours of study so it's not mm. too dissimilar when you get down into the detail so for us with se21 we're looking at creating a a combination of both because we want students mm. to have access to tertiary or industry in, in any of those environments globally so therefore they would have a we, we've we've joined the mastery transcript consortium which gives mm-hmm. a holistic approach to the u.s star uh, transcript and a digital portfolio and yeah. then on the other side we're trying to look at stacking micro credentials and mm-hmm. then we're also talking to some qualification providers to see if they partner with us to recognize those micro credentials as a specific qualification so if you like a 21st century diploma is one of the things we're exploring and and i guess i'm going to ask you that question do you have a timeline is there a launch date do you know when that's going to be (laughs) or is that something that is for us to follow you and to wait and see yeah it's it's a good question we we were looking at august 2023 we're now in a discussion to see whether we might actually try and bring it forward to august 2022 oh wow but that's a watch this space kind of moment. <laughs> Which goes back to my, you must follow Kevin House on LinkedIn because he's the only person <laughs> yeah, to follow yeah. on LinkedIn to find out what's happening. So, well, yeah. yeah, I mean, Kevin, it's, it's such an exciting and I always learn so much listening to you and talking to you. And uh, yeah, and you are always open to, to listening to others as well. So are you looking do you do you need other people to reach out so if anyone's listening to this podcast and think i'd really like to to kind of contribute to this movement what's the best thing for them to do contact you on linkedin or or what what can they do yeah for all of the talk of tech i am a person of 
of, of my generation, I suppose. So I'm a bit analog. Uh, so yeah. LinkedIn's about as far as I go. I do. Yeah. I'm a kind of lurker on Twitter. I'm not very busy on Twitter. Yeah, no, um, I've tried, Kevin. I'm, <laughs> I just can't. I can't. But yeah, I'm, so, I'm like you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, f- okay. find me on Twitter. I to your point about do I want to connect with people? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. This is a shared journey. I was talking with someone the other day who said, you know, given the nature of education, and I think quite rightly education and innovation is something that's done relatively slowly. Some might say too slowly, and I think there's an element of that, but I think a certain level of caution. These are young mm. people's lives in our hands and, and yeah. we, we need to tread carefully. But I think it's more evolution than revolution was the phrase someone used, and I, I really liked that, that way yeah. of putting it. I think it's about creating... The work I'm doing is about creating more diversity as opposed to mm-hmm. trying to, if you like, completely disrupt an education system that's that's existed for a good couple of hundred years. But yeah. it is time for it to be disrupted. I think it needs to unscale to some yeah. degree. And yeah, any people who are interested in continuing the conversation, please do reach out to me. Kevin, it's been an absolute delight talking to you and listening to you, as it always is. And thank you for your time. I know you're incredibly busy with so many meetings every day. So it's been really great to have you on the podcast. And I'm sure hopefully you'll get lots more LinkedIn followers and lots of conversations following from this, hopefully. (laughs) No, it's been wonderful. You know, I always love catching up with you. It's really great to talk to you. And uh, really great, great podcast and good luck with the series. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that was Dr. Kevin House talking about the future of education, amongst other things. Thank you for coming on to this episode of the podcast, Kevin. Great to hear your discussion with Angela there. Now, if you'd like to know more about future-proofing your school through strategic development, then do contact Angela Fairs, our host, by visiting www.fullcircle-education.co.uk. Or you can email her directly. It's angelafairs at fullcircle-education.co.uk. Now, our next episode is coming out soon. But in the meantime, thank you for listening to this one. Don't forget to follow or subscribe so that you can stay in touch. And we look forward to seeing you next time. But also don't forget this episode was co-sponsored by the International Schools Network. If you're a teacher, member of staff or a leader working at an international school, ISN invites you to be part of the conversation. Head over to isn.education to learn more and to be part of this incredibly exciting community of educators. Thank you for listening. and Bye for now.